Hey, what's up, guys? Another episode Eastman's Elevated here. Um, boy, these weeks just keep clicking off, and we keep getting out episodes, and um, man, this has been really good platform, so just super excited to get out another one here. Um, this week, we have on my first female guest on Eastman's Elevated, uh, Rachel Attila. So uh, she's just the, the perfect female to have on first. I've, I've recorded another one with one of my friends, Andrea, that we haven't released yet, but I, I really wanted to get out this one with Rachel. Um, she's just super knowledgeable. She's a guide up in the Northwest Territory up there and so she just goes for it she's a, a sheep guide moose caribou and and then before that she worked for jim shockey as a guide and we kind of talk all about it and introduce her but um she's just a, a super knowledgeable gal uh really goes for it and, and really works hard to to be the best guide and the best hunter she can be so some really good information in here and how she does it up in the northwest territories so you guys are going to enjoy this um she's a really good speaker and did a really good job on this episode um, this episode is brought to you by Sportsman's Warehouse. Um, Sportsman's Warehouse, they're just a great company. My buddy went um, back to work. He runs the store up there in Fairbanks, and he's just constantly hitting me up for information. And they, he just works really hard to get the best people in place so you can go in and, and touch and feel their gear. They, they work hard at getting the best gear in there, and then they work hard at getting the best staff, best knowledgeable staff. Um, that really goes for it, and they encourage them to be hunters and fishermen, and and uh, so they have a big knowledge base, so they can help you out when you go in there. You can ask questions, you can actually see their gear, touch and feel it. So, um, Sportsman's Warehouse are doing a great job. Stores all over the West, so give them some love and and thanks for supporting the podcast, Sportsman's Warehouse. Um, over there at Eastman's, uh, so we've got this big sheep issue come out, coming out, and it's kind of timely, and the reason I wanted to have Rachel on, she wrote a, a big article in there, and she's just a heck of a writer. Um, she, she wrote this article, What Guides Want. So, you know, it's all about how to prepare for one of these big-time hunts where us hunters spend a lot of money and we're going to be guided on a hunt. And, and you can't just coast on, on cruise control and just think your your guide or your outfitter is going to do all the work for you, you know. And so she talks about being prepared physically, mentally, you know, having the right clothing so you can survive out there. And everything outfitters want when you show up, um, you know, on your big once-in-a-lifetime hunt. So um, I haven't got a chance to read it yet, but I'm, I'm sure she's just a super writer. And I know that all the guys at Eastman's are really excited about it. So I'm excited to read it as well. Um, make sure you check it out, The Sheep Issue, and, and check out Rachel Attila's article in there, What Guides Want. So, um, boy, let's well, let's get this thing rolling. Um, Rachel Attila, Eastman's Elevated, here we go. All right, I'm here with Rachel Attila. Rachel, thanks so much for being on the podcast with me. Brian, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure in talking to you over the last couple of weeks and putting this together. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm just so thrilled to talk to you. You have so much hunting experience, so... Um, why don't we just start off, like, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into hunting. You're a guide up in Northwest Territories now, right? Yeah, I am. I, I This will be my sixth year going back for Harold Grindy at Gannon River Outfitters. And to be honest, like, guiding was something that I fell into in my later teens after having spent summer since I was 11 growing up in northern BC at my godparents' hunting camp at Scoop Like Outfitters. And it's it's kind of a neat, weird transition that I'm here talking with you, Brian, because the ram that I first guided my client on a stone sheep hunt was actually shot near Eastman's Valley, where Gordon Eastman had gone and filmed High, Wild, and Free. Oh, wow, so, that is wild. Crazy, hey? So, like, the whole Moody Lakes and 
you know, down in Dedenatia and Doll Lake that he talks about in the video were camps of mine as a kid growing up when I would wrangle. And so, yeah, I don't know, it's weird that it's come full circle in a very humbling way, but you know, having grown up with two parents that definitely encouraged us to be outdoorsy, um, you know, it it definitely set the stage for the rest of my life and, you know, in the career that I'm doing right now. And, um, you know, everything has opportunities. I I actually, I went and lived in abroad for, um, in New Zealand for a year and a half in 2009 to th- 2010 and came back with a vengeance that I was going to be an outfitter. And I, I flew to... Um, I think it was actually Reno when they had um, SCI International in Reno mm-hmm. back then and um, had $150 to my name and a bunch of neon orange resumes and went and filled out a guiding season. And from there, ended up picking up a job with Shockey and guided in the Yukon and BC and out in Saskatchewan. And along the way, needed to find some summer work and ended up trail cooking for Harold Grindy the first year. And then the rest is history. I've been working for him ever since and guiding my way down the highway and living out of a bag and <laughs> going that route it's not traditional by any means but it puts a smile on my face and keeps the bills paid and i love what i do so it makes oh, it easy good for you what an adventurous lifestyle you had growing up all the way from the age of 11 being in hunting camp and then new zealand that had to be wild did you do any hunting while you were there I, yeah, I sure did. I did a um, do-it-yourself tar hunt around Lake Tikpo with um, the family that I had lived with while I was down there and um, did a little bit of red deer hunting. And I tell you what, got a whole new appreciation for the guys that go wild hog hunting with the boars down there and the dogs, um, you know, where they're hunting with knives. That's a, that's a whole <laughs> other game that this cowgirl was not ready for. Oh, you are um, kidding. So they, so they hunt them, they chase them with dogs and bay them up, and then you have to get in there with a knife to kill them, like, after the... Yeah, you gotta go in and flip them over. And, like, <laughs> oh, no and I was way. like, whoa, I am full power for the 30-30 on this one. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a wild experience, for sure. That is wild. Uh, so visceral, too. You have to really get in there with the dogs biting, and uh, I'm sure the pig is on is all get out and try oh, to yeah. try to make gotta, a good stab on it. Yeah, you got to grab him by his hocks and flip him over, or get him right up underneath the um, right up underneath the shoulder, um, right in you know kind of a sweet spot where yeah. you'd shoot anything. And I tell you what, if the pig and the dogs don't get you, it'll be the flora and fauna because everything down there's got a barb or a hook on it. So you see these kiwis running around in kiwi shorts and um, freaking Carhartt pants or shaps just so that their legs don't get tore up and all the briar down there. Oh, really? Oh, that's wild. I would never know. Um, yeah, that is just crazy. That uh, that make your heart beat out of your chest. Oh, yeah. It gave me, you know, it's funny, though. It gave me a full new appreciation for hunting back here at home in North America because everything was introduced to New Zealand and it's registered as a pest. And they're, they've been working through the last decade or two to establish that they do have a market and a value for those animals and kind of having a little bit more protection for them. But coming home to North America, it really made me appreciate hunting tags, rules and regulations so that there wasn't, you know, illegal poaching or gaming of species. And, you know, it just I think people over here have a bit more respect for our animals than they do where they're just a pest. Right? Yeah. There's no there's no rules saying you can't just shoot something and then just walk out, you know. 
So yeah, no, it, it brings ethics to it, and like you say, they have such a value, and we just, all of us hunters love them so much that we want to protect them and the country that they're in. So, yeah, it's got to mm-hmm. be a different world to be down there where they view them differently as a pest that, that you can, you know, I know some people shoot them and leave them in some, in some cases. Yeah, but you know what? There are there are good groups, and like the the people that I hunted with, you know, they're very ethical in it, and a lot of it is just management because they don't have predators. So, you know, taking that experience and learning to hunt with them and, and understanding why they have to hunt their certain ways for, you know, to a certain extent, I can totally sympathize with because, you know, they don't have to look over their shoulder while they're walking back to camp and whistle Dixie because they might have a grizzly or a black bear trailing them home, right? So Yeah, totally. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yep. Yeah, and, but it was, it was a neat experience for sure. Well, it's a beautiful country too. Is it the um, that tar on the South Island? You had to be up high in some mountains for that, huh? Relatively speaking, you know, we were high as far as New Zealand standards. Um, you know, we they're still just a day hike from the pickup truck, but it uh, you know you can kind of make it as tough as you want to. Um, but it, it was a neat experience. They're a lot like a grizzly bear walking around in full fur, crossed with a mountain goat. So. And with the bulls being, you know, two-thirds bigger than the nannies, or, um, sorry, one-third bigger than the nannies, I think you'd have to look up the specs for it, but the nannies run around and they look like a bunch of kids when a bull tar is in full plume and he's fluffed right up. It, it's quite neat. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, that's way cool. And so then you came back and you went to work. Is that when you went to work for Jim Shockey then? Yep. That's yep. Um, That next spring, um, Branlin, his son, had hired me for their professionals TV show, and I was their rookie guide and cameraman, so I got to go and see all three of their different locations and learned a lot about Argos and did their big roundup up in the um, Yukon Territory where they switch out their, their old Argos with the new. Um, and then from there, went out to Whitetail Camp, learned a bit out there, froze my tail off sitting in the stand, oh, I realized, <laughs> realized I do not have the patience of a nun to sit around and minus stupid weather. Uh, <laughs> character building, I think. Yeah, well, and like we were talking before, it's just, um, you know, you kind of find out what you like, and the mountain hunting and spot and stock hunting is so much fun. And, and sitting in a stand or sitting in a, uh, you know, a blind for whitetails, it's a lot more of a thinking man's game where you got to think which trails are going to walk out. There's a lot of patience involved, but it's a whole nother skill set. But it just seems like uh, different animals and different species and different terrains, like the more you can do that, the the better hunter you are overall. Exactly. I think it keeps a person sharp. And I have a lot of respect for whitetail hunters because you're literally looking at trails, looking at rubs, thinking, okay, well, if this guy walks potentially through here, I might have a shooting lane here. And it's like, wow, you know, that's where in, you know, in a lot of the mountain terrain that I specialize in, you can make things happen. You know, you're planning your stocks. You find the animals, and then you go towards them. Caribou, maybe not so much. You're kind of like a a lucky dip if they come running past or you can get ahead of them because it's kind of the running joke you'll never catch a caribou yeah so. gotcha well yeah <laughs> and those those whitetail hunters i have a ton of respect too um those whitetails are just so smart in in small habitats they could live on a a farm that's five acres or maybe not five acres but 40 acres and that's just where they live and that you know they may roam a little bit more during the rut but they you don't see them very often and they're just super smart in small spaces and so you know that's why that's the draw to them and why they're so challenging yeah, exactly. There's yep. there's a lot of really good whitetail hunters out there. I'm I'm hoping, you know, one day I'll get the whole Mr. Miyagi thing down with whitetail, but 
you know, right now I'll be content with hunting sheep for a bit. Me too. We get one tag in Montana and it's good for a whitetail or a mule deer. And so I keep thinking I'm going to chase a big whitetail and it never ends up happening because I just love hunting mule deer so much that I always <laughs> end up taking my bow and, and going spot and stalking for mule deer because I'm just a mule deer nut. But one of these years I'm going to get into it or get a tag in a different state and, and really apply myself and see if I can if I can harvest a nice one because I, I think I just need that experience. I think it'll make me grow as a hunter. So one of these years I'm with you. Maybe I'll be Mr. Miyagi too. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Good deal. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, um, yeah, so then from whitetails and then you say caribou, like you never chase a caribou. It's more of just trying to get in front of them. So they're kind of like elk in that sense where you're always trying to cut them off and be where they are headed, right? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people don't realize like in the early part of the season when they're pushing velvet, they're up high because they have that much blood flowing through their very soft antlers. And with the velvet, they're just like a, a heating hot spot for any kind of bugs. So you'll see them up above the sheep laying on the precipice. You know, it's kind of unreal on how high and where these four-legged critters will go because, you know, ever since that Frozen movie came out with the kids, I, you know, my nephews will look at that and go, well, shouldn't that live here? And they have this idea that Sven just kind of walks around on the plains, but it's like, no, those buggers can climb if they want to. So it's trying to, you know, get ahead of them, plan where they're going to come down. And I find, you know, hunting caribou is a lot like snowflakes. No two are the same. You know, if you don't see a caribou that you don't like, just wait. If they're running, you might have an opportunity on something bigger, better, or more unique, and maybe perhaps like a smaller frame size. But they're different for sure. They're they're quite interesting to play with. They're cautiously curious. Okay. And then, yeah, so they're, they're fun to kind of play with. But it's all funny, you know, hunters come up with a different mentalities, you know, with the mass migrations that they might have hunted in different parts of the world and you know, the NWT is a very special place. It's kind of like a hunter's playground. So it's neat getting to see hunters from all sorts of backgrounds come and experience it because it's like nothing else. Yeah, that's wild. I um, Yeah, I love caribou. I always have. I always thought they'd be a good animal to, to bow hunt. And yeah, it reminds me kind of mule deer like that early season in that velvet. I, I love when animals live in that exte- extreme terrain, like up high in those mountains. So that's got to be way fun to hunt them. And I, I'm going to head and I hunted uh, moose last season. This season I'm going to do a, you know, like a self-guided do-it-yourself caribou hunt, kind of a budget trip. My buddy's in Fairbanks and they've got the haul road that's hunting either side and so we're going to go up there and go live out of his pickup truck and see if we can't find some caribou to go chase around so i'm super excited i only saw my first caribou last season but they look like they're really fun to hunt so i'll have to take that to heart that they're like snowflakes and i'm sure i'll repeat that a hundred times by the time (laughs) i get done hunting with them oh that's awesome well yeah i wish you the very best of luck with that yeah, thanks a bunch. So, um, yeah, that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here is you see so many hunters that are just uh, going for their dream hunt, and, and you're kind of the one that facilitates that, especially, well, I mean all species, you know, whether it's caribou or moose or sheep is the one that always stands out to me, but um, you, you do some really extreme hunts where you see a, a bunch of, of clients that you see come in, and so I wanted to pick your brain on – on just everything about it, like uh, what makes a successful hunter. And so, you know, in my mind, like attitude always comes first on my tough hunts. And I, I've got to imagine it's it's the same for you as having a good attitude with the clients that come in. 
Exactly. And the biggest thing is, is working as a team, you know, as much as you are the guide, this is still their hunt. And so I find it doesn't matter if you're male or female as a guide, you really have to learn how each client communicates and where their strengths and weaknesses are. But at the end of the day, you know, I've had older clients that have kicked the snot out of some of the younger clientele that I've taken because they just have heart and they have try. And in the mountains, like it's, it is not a picnic. You're going up and down. You have to be able to live, you know, it's, it's remote. There are a lot of people that don't understand the lack of connectedness. As soon as you step off that plane, you're there in a and entirety is what it is, and you realize how humbling it is and how small and insignificant you are when that plane flies away and it's just you and your guide and your backpack, what goods you have, and your firearm. Oh, and, gosh, you're so right. Yeah, and that's where people, I think, you know, if they can get over that and that's what they love, then they'll be fine. But as soon as you start to get fatigue, that's when all your emotions start coming in and they start weighing on your thoughts. And then the next thing you know, if you don't have a positive attitude or or at least, you know, the gumption to just stick something out. It's it's hard. I've had clients quit on me walking across a shale wall. Like it's, they just they didn't realize what it entailed to sheep hunt, and it's hard. Like you you can't explain that situation or that feeling because you want to be there to help that person. So as a guide, you know, you hope that the best case scenario is your client has done their research on where they're going and what they're doing. For the most part, when guys are in, and guys and gals too are investing that amount of dollars into a hunt. You know, there's there's a certain level of preparedness that is kind of expected when they jump off the plane at our base camp, because whether you're doing a horseback hunt where you're either getting dropped off in an established horse camp and day hunting from there and then moving camp, or you're coming to our string where we leave base camp, shake your goods down, you live out of a pannier for 12 days. And you're hunting remotely and, you know, you don't have a shower. You might have a, a new sat phone or an in-reach where you can stay in touch with folks. But your level of connectedness is, you know, where you can sit here on your phone and have a conversation with someone halfway around the world, do your emails and handle business matters. You don't have Wi-Fi and you don't have cell phone service out there. So the biggest thing clients, I think nowadays when they're used to that connectedness is just taking a step back mentally and physically. Yeah, for sure. And I love how you mentioned that you have older clients that kick the snot out of younger ones just with heart. Like it, it, it all starts and ends with, with heart and a good attitude on those tough hunts. And they, like you say, you don't know what you're getting into until you step off the plane. And, uh, you know, I hunt a lot of uh, wild wildernesses, but it, it was a different feeling getting off the plane last year in Alaska being 200 air miles from the closest town. Like you, it is remote. It is, it is you and you have to rely upon your skills to survive. And like you say, when you're not used to being unplugged from the world, it's a little bit difficult to unplug. But I, I just love what you mentioned about heart. Like you have to – it has to be desire and you have to want it and then you have to keep that good attitude. And I also like what you mentioned as hunting as a team. Like that's how I kind of envision it being guided. If I – you know, if you were my guide and I was the client and came up, like – it would be me and you like you'd be one of my buddies and we would work together and discuss things together and you never want to be at odds with your guide you know you just you want to work as a team and work together and, and i also like that you 
you kind of change the you kind of see their skill set and and what's good and bad or or what their um how did you phrase it you said what's what's positive and negative that wasn't it but what their strong and and weak points are and then kind of cater the hunt to that and i think guys could do more of that on their hunt oh exactly and you know what it breaks down to is just being able to be a people person you know as much as you're a trained hunter you are someone's friend for a week and so like any good friendship you have to be able to communicate and, and work as a team and you know, a prime example, um, you know, the cultural and I, I hate to beat a dead horse, but like there's so much going on with women in the industry that I don't, it sounds terrible, but I don't think of myself as a woman when I'm out in the mountains. I'm just a guide. I'm there to do a job. And I had an instance this past year that I still 10 years into my 11 years into my career as a professional guide. Um, I had a gentleman from, you know, an older, more traditional background that, was not necessarily okay at first with a female guide, but the whole mentality of keep your head down, work hard, you know, actions speak louder than words, did end up working out very well for the both of us. And they, him and his son were actually both archery hunters, and we were very successful because we had we had that community feel to us, but we also learned how to communicate. And it's, I don't know, every person is different. And I think as soon uh, the biggest part about being a guide and, and even for outfitters is just learning how to match personalities because, you know, you can go to an outfit and say, yep, I'm going to come on a hunt with you. And part of the job is that outfitter is going to try and figure out, okay, this is an A-type person. I'm going to match them up with this guide because I think they'll do well together as a team. So that's one of the bigger parts of an outfitter is matching up those personalities to ensure that it's going to be a successful hunt, not only on the harvest side, but you know, on the whole experience side as well. And that, that really leads into, you know, what do outfitters really want from their clients? Yeah, that's, um, I never thought about it that way, matching up, um, you know, guides with the clients as far as attitude and which ones match up. Um, but yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, it does. And, you know, that's one thing that, um, I commend the bosses that I've worked for. Um, you know, they, they were apprehensive at first about having a female on crew just because they didn't, you know, there there has been traditional stigma of women in camp or what have you, and barriers have been breached. But um, as especially as a backpack guide, where it's not like you have a horse crew that you come back to, where you've got a wrangler and sometimes a trail cook and another guide and another client, it's just you and the client. And so, you know, both parties have to feel comfortable. And it's it's been an interesting experience for myself. But to be honest, I I wouldn't change it for the world. And I've had a lot of really good experiences with a lot of great clients that have become good friends over the years yeah well and um it says a lot about you and your skill set too i would think like like even me and you if we had equal skill sets and equal hunters you still have the tougher road as being a guide because you've got to break down that perception you know almost every time like you say with your outfitter at first and and with your clients but i'm sure like you say uh, uh actions speak louder than words and i i'm sure when they see your work ethic and and how knowledgeable and skilled you are like that all washes away and it's just about being a good a good people person like you said and and being a a good friend for a week and kind of reading your client and knowing you know knowing your place to jump in and jump out and when to go for it and when not to but um man that's just incredible to hear about no thank you it's 
part of the game, right? It's what you do, and it's what becomes your lifestyle, and after a while, it just becomes second nature. So. Yeah, it's super interesting to me because I never I never think about that dynamic. I'm always solo, but I, I do have that dynamic, whether I've got, you know, lately it's been a cameraman or, or a hunting buddy or a hunting partner. The attitudes between you two and the attitude of your hunting partner is almost the same dynamic. I mean, they're not paying me any money to be the outfitter, so I don't, I don't have that stress on me, but it is that same dynamic of working together, you know, for a common goal. Exactly. And and that's what it boils down to. And that common goal can take on a variety of different roles, whether, you know, it comes to the harvest point or just the enjoyment and the experience. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's crazy. Um, so, so you guys do some backpack hunts too. I know you do a lot with horses and you probably have to in that big country just to be able to move around, but eventually it comes down to leg power and getting up those mountains. And, and so you guys do some backpack hunts as well, huh? Yep. Um, I think Harold, he runs between three and four guides um, that are backpack crew. And then he's traditionally got uh, two guides on the one crew that I'm on and then another guide on the other horse crew that has a wrangler. And then our crew has a wrangler and sometimes a trail cook. Um, And with the backpack, that's predominantly all dropped off by the super cub. And then you're hunting different regions from there. And then with the horse crew, we hunt... um, you know, traditional valleys that we have, and we'll go spike camping, you know, from our, our outpost locations. Um, and that's just to cover the country. I mean, there's there's a lot of places you can't get horses to feasibly. And in the NWT, our biggest thing is grass. You know, as an outfitter and as a guide, you have to be very cognizant of how much grass you have left and feed for your animals. Um, because they are pulling long days, you know, even though you ride them up and down the valleys and you tie them up, Um, and then you start your hike for the day, you know, it's still, that's strain on them and they're standing around. So like our first priority when we get back to camp is our horses after we get our clients taken care of and off and and off and on their way to their tent is, uh, making sure our horses are, you know, not getting sorted up. And, you know, if someone's pulling a harder shift than someone else, making sure they've got days off in between. And that's one thing I really admire about the outfit I work for up North is that we have enough horses that not every horse has to work. Um, most of them get two days off in between shifts. So our horses are some of the best looking when they come out of the mountains, just because we have enough horsepower. Every horse does pull a shift when he has to. Um, and you know, when it comes to the backpacking side, it's a little bit harder on some of the guides because it, it is hard. Backpack hunts are hard on the body and the first thing they'll go are a guy's knees. And so, you know, it, being a backpack guy definitely has a bit of a lifespan because it's it's hard on the body and when you're carrying a load and more often than not carrying a little bit extra for your client because you're a little bit more seasoned you know two or three hunts in it still has its toll but it's a great way to see country up there and and make waypoints that you got to hike to for your different airstrips so way cool yeah so do you um you have all your airstrips built up there already or are those something that you have to kind of construct as you're up there as well both yeah there are some airstrips that we have um you know you got to go and clear them out each year that are you know roughed out on the tundra um but a lot of the times with the backpackers when they're getting dropped off like you and old billy are flying looking at the line going yep i think we can land there and you kind of pucker up and as soon as you hit the dirt you mark out, you know, over 250 yards and clear the strip and then use flagging tape so that he knows. And, um, you know, the biggest thing for a guide is when you get to and from a strip on the backpack crew is you have to be able to report, you know, which way your wind's coming. So that way your pilot can kind of 
get an idea for his approach. Obviously, he'll feel it as he's flying into the valley, but, you know, your ground winds can be a little bit different depending on your thermals. So you got to make sure that you don't have rocks or mud that's going to fly up on the plane. And there's, a, there's a lot else that goes into it besides just hunting and finding sheep and caribou and moose. So. I would say things that I never think about. I mean, I'm starting to hunting Alaska and, and doing some of the plane hunts now. But, yeah, like the landing strips and then like moving your horses strategically because of the grass in the valley. Um, there's a lot more that goes into being a good outfitter and a good guy than just finding the critters. Wow, that's exactly it. And that's that's the part that I love about it is the heritage because that's how the West was truly settled. And I feel like this job and occupation is literally the last frontier. We still get to play, you know, frontiersmen each day that we ride out in our super cool new gear, you know, and our Gore-Tex. But to think back on the guys like of Jack O'Connor's day that used to do it in a Mackinac jeans and some old army surplus boots is pretty unreal. Yeah, I'd say, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, so the new gear, I, we are so fortunate. Our, we're almost spoiled with the gear that we can have nowadays. But I, I'm sure that's pretty important when you get your your client a gear list to come up there to survive in the Northwest Territories for seven to ten days. They've got to have the right layers to be able to survive out there. Exactly, and you know, Brian, that really lends a lot into um, that next article that's coming out for the sheep issue for Eastman's Hunting Journal. Um, we we kind of we joked about the title and we thought, well, heck, we'll we'll go with something that adds a little bit more humor. And it's, you know, what do outfitters really want? And you know, in lieu of the whole Mel Gibson, what do women really want? We won't even get into that. <laughs> that's a great title. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So that's coming out in the Sheep issue next. The next issue of the Eastman Hunting Journal. And I know all those Eastman's guys are really excited to have you writing with us there on the on the staff. So I can't wait to read your article that comes out. No, oh, well, thank you very much. Hopefully I don't sound like a total doofus, but, um, you know, what we talk about in that article is this, that preparedness, you know, and it lends back to what you just said about the right gear going into the mountains. And, you know, n- not everyone wears Sitka. Not everyone chooses to wear Kuyu. Not everyone chooses to, you know, have the latest and greatest goods because there's a lot of opportunity out there for different, different you know, items and, and name brands that work differently for different people. But the biggest thing is, it doesn't matter what name brand you're going to wear. Your foolproof system is like a soft wool against your body that helps wick away any moisture and it helps regulate your temperature. You know, it also is going to dry. There's a lot of synthetics out there that do dry fast, but they won't keep the heat in against your body. Okay, so so, so you love like the Moreno wool as your base yeah. layer is the go-to. Yep, yep, hands down. Um, when I lived in New Zealand, I got to work on a fine, an ultra fine merino station, and so I got to learn wool from the hoof up, and yeah, like an unreal experience now to look back on it and how it prepared me for how I now, you know, prepare for a hunt because I understand the mechanics behind it, and you know, wool. What a lot of people don't realize, it also has a certain amount of fire retardancy. So when you're sitting around a campfire. You know, I'll be the first to tell you, if you're wearing synthetics and you get an ash that flies on you, that thing's going to go up like a tinder. And I've been the person that's gone up like a tinder. (laughs) That's the last thing you really want to wear is something that's flammable out there. Okay. I didn't know that about being flammable, but you're right. Sparks are always kicking off that fire. And, um, you know, I've seen guys burn their boots or burn their socks. But, yeah, I never really thought about that. Huh. And the synthetics, sometimes they do dry faster. Um, but, but the wool carries like an insulating value as it's wet. And so you, you stick with the Moreno wool. 
Yes, I do. Icebreaker is a terrific brand. Um, Smartwool is now coming out with a bunch of stuff. I know Sika and Kuyu, they each have their own Arcteryx, you know, any of those yeah. upper first level. Yep. Yeah, First Light, all of those guys that have gone and done their research. Um, but the biggest thing you want to maintain is your wool quality. Um, you want to look at the mixture on any price tag. I don't care what brand you're looking at. You want to make sure that your mixture is running, you know, better than the filler they have in it, whether their filler is spandex or their filler is acrylic or whatever, the better the wool content that you can have on the tag value, the best that you can actually get for your dollar. Wow. I didn't um, know that as well. So explain that one more time for me, just so I make sure that I grasp what you're saying. So you're saying that, that the wool content has to be more than the other items that are put in that garment, like a spandex or, or poly acrylic or, or a poly. Yeah, exactly. Because okay. the, the, to have, you know, a wool product, in essence, traditionally, it is wool. It is spun, woven wool. 100% and wool. 100% wool. Yep. You know, nowadays, you know, to meet target markets and everything like that, they've snuck in poly, they've snuck in acrylic, they've snuck in spandex, and that's just to help maintain the dignity of the shirt, sorry. So the biggest thing I tell people, it doesn't, I don't care what brand you're going to buy, but make sure that your quality of wool is reflected in that tag, you know, over 65 to 70% minimum because otherwise you're basically just wearing something that's synthetic. Boy, that's a really good point. Yeah, I never thought about that, but that's a great thing to check out when you're buying your base layers. And then, like I know I wear bottoms. I A lot of times I, I bring two bottoms with me. I love like the zip-off style where you don't even have to take off your shoes. You just kind of like pull your trousers down and then you can zip them off and pull them off for when you're heating up going up the mountain. But the zip-off ones are really nice. But I, I usually bring one to two pairs of those. And then for my upper layer, I usually run like a smart wool t-shirt and then i wear my other layers on top of that do you just run like one base layer on the top like a like a zip that you how what do you run for your system or recommend um okay to make it easy we'll start you know feet up i you know like a wool system like a big heavy cushioned wool sock i personally have never tried the zip off leggings side of things or like the long johns oh you um, love them yeah I, I haven't got my hands on them yet so it'd be interesting to try them because i do love the way that you know, a merino wool base layer will wear, um, you know, when whether you're wearing jeans and you're horseback riding out to camp or you're wearing a synthetic, you know, sicker kuyu pant or whatever. So um, next, you know, when you got I, I seriously, I don't waste my time on a T-shirt because in the NWT, the amount of times that I actually get to wear a T-shirt and feel comfortable in it <laughs> is very little. We have. We have summer, but it's for about two and a half days and you might hit 30 degrees Celsius. So. <laughs> I'm usually wearing a long sleeve with a three-quarter zip um, merino base. And, I mean, that is nice and light and cool. And I'll wear that in the summer days anyways because it will breathe. And it'll keep you cool even in the beating down sun. And I'll just roll up my sleeves. So, um, you know, and having a merino liner, um, I have a very narrow little toque that I'll throw on at night when I'm camping up high just to keep that body heat, you know, circulating downward and not escaping. Yep. Um so, you know, between my socks all the way up to my head, wool. Yep. And then from there, the biggest thing is having a loft layer. So polar fleece or anything like that is a great option. Um, you know, polygene and um, primal loft are, are really starting to pair up now. So you're seeing, you know, some of the more synthetic type cloth, like clothing, I would say, that has some of these um, 
I don't know. There's a lot of hoopla about the mechanics behind like a polygene. And, you know, there's a lot of naysayers that say, well, it'll never be- react the same as Merino. True, because it's not Merino. It's a synthetic material. So whatever a person feels comfortable with, as long as it's not trapping the heat in that middle loft layer, because you're still going to expire through that layer no matter what you do. Yes, um, for sure. So, yep. Well, yeah. And, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, well, and I, I love for them to be hooded too. I can just regulate my temperature so well being hooded. And that's part of like, I wear the t-shirt so I can change out t-shirts when I sweat them out because even the Merino wool gets wet. And so mm-hmm. when I sweat them out, then I can change that out. But it's just like a, and then I wear like a lightweight sun hoodie or a lightweight synthetic there to keep me out of the sun. But, you know, like you say, we're hunting two different temperatures, two different climates, two different country. But yeah, that loft layer, I love to have a hood in it. You run hoods in yours or the three quarter zip? Um, both for the most times, um, when I do a loft layer, it'll be a full zip, you know, all the way down the front. Um, because, you know, Sika does a great Celsius jacket. I have lived and breathed in that thing because it, I can literally, I'll hike up the mountain. Then as soon as you stop and you start glassing, I'll get a chill. So I'll throw that on and it's lightweight and it's at the top of my pack, you know, and it just, it has a little bit of a windbreaker ability to it. So you're not getting a lot of the really cold winds breaking through and, and taking that heat away from your body. Um, but I don't run hoods because I don't like my peripherals being blocked. Okay. You know, when you're up there in grizzly country, um, that's why I, you know, I wear a ball cap and then I'll put a toque so I can pull it down over my ears. Yep. Um, and then I wear, you know, a wild rag, like a a silk scarf, um, because I just, I need to be able to see. And that's something that I'll wear a hooded jacket, you know, at night when I'm in my sleeping bag. But for the most part, I just, it's just my thing. I just don't like wearing a hood when I'm out in the field. You know, a rain gear, of course, you're going to have to do that. But for the most part, you're sitting down with your back to something. And in grizzly country, you know, or you're sitting over a kill or you're walking back with, you know, meat in your pack, the last thing you want to do is be able to kind of block your vision. So Yeah, well, that makes sense. But I do live in a hood in grizzly country where it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to block it too much for me. But I get what you're saying. That makes total sense. Well, as a guide, I mean, you're responsible for someone else, right? So to me, like, I, I just have never ran hoodies just because I have this impending, you know, knock on my shoulder saying, well, you, you're responsible for someone else besides yourself. So, and that's personal. That's totally a personal choice. I mean, if I had a jacket with a hood on it that I absolutely loved, I know the Celsius jacket does come with that. Um, but, you know, that's just one of my little quirks, I guess. So, but besides that, I mean, if that works for you that's awesome and i'll be honest like all of my rain jackets have hoods on them so no i'm with you no what you're saying makes total sense yeah i don't it doesn't seem to impede my vision too much but um i totally get what you're saying and then um do you run like a puffball jacket that like a heavy insulating jacket that you'll throw on under your raincoat or do yeah, you... and that, yeah, it's that Celsius jacket. Oh, that um, is a Celsius jacket. Okay. Yep. I didn't know. So that's like a, a down or a synthetic. Is that right? It's a Prima Loft. Yep. Oh, okay. Gotcha. All right. I was thinking that was more like a like a wind cutting layer, like a a small insulation jacket. Okay. So so you wear your base layer, and then on top of your base layer, you go with your your puffball jacket. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then and then on top of that, you'll go with your rain gear on top of that. Yep. You got it. And I yep. mean and to note like the windstopper factor. Yeah. When it is warmer, I'll wear, you know, a, a light jacket that has, I love the new jackets that are coming out with the breathers in the armpits. I mean, you're working hard, you're hiking up hills, but 
you're not so cold that you don't want to take your jacket off, but you need to be able to regulate your temperature. I think that is probably one of the best designs I've seen, you know, and it's been out for a long time now, but it's, you know, they reinvented the wheel and they made it better when they did that. In oh, the me too. Yeah, that was the best thing going on rain jackets. Like finally you can get that heat out of that jacket and, and still keep dry and hike with it a little bit because the old stuff, it just doesn't breathe like they say it breathes a little, but it just doesn't breathe enough and you end up getting so sweaty in there trying to do anything. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yep. And then you, you said know, your hat, you have the pull down ears. So that's like that wool style hat. Is that right? With the brim on it and then the ears pull down. Is that the one you run? Um, I actually, I don't have one of those. I, I do have a Stormy Cromer that it's similar to that, but they just have like a band that slides down. Um, and that's just a traditional wool cap. But for the most part in the summer, I'm re- running a ball cap and then I'll just carry a toque with me. Because um, as you climb, you want to be able to take it off. But when you're sitting there on the side of the mountain, it's nice to not have the wind whistling through your ears as much. So. Oh, that's the worst. I hate cold ears. And so a took, um, that's just like it just goes around your head like a two-inch band, a wool that, or some synthetic that goes around <laughs> your ears. Is that right? No, sorry. This is where we got the cultural barrier. I, it totally is. Basically, is. a beanie. Okay, I, gotcha. I, you guys call it a beanie, which to me, <laughs> I think beanie babies, which are like stuffies. I'm like, no, I'm not wearing a stuffy on my head. <laughs> so funny i'm trying to figure out what a took is to make sure that i understand <laughs> you right <laughs> i'm gonna send you some reading literature brian and i know uh, bob and doug mckenzie take off to the great white north and they are like took aficionados so I'll, I'll do that favor for you okay it sounds like a plan yeah i've i've done a, a couple people from canada lately and i just love the sayings but i almost get stuck on it like you say the cultural difference of just making sure that i understand what you're using but <laughs> Uh, no, that's perfect. No, that sounds like a lot similar to, to my mountain setup too, or what I'm running. It sounds like you've got all the essentials and it's like a, a minimalist setup too. You're not packing too much or extra coats or, you know, they, they make so much gear nowadays is that I bet you hate it when somebody shows up and they've got, you know, 15 pounds of gear when really all you need is those necessary layers that you talked about. Well, exactly. You know what, if you're going to, on a backpack, especially where you're carrying all your stuff, like, you you're carrying your food you're carrying your tent you're carrying your sleeping bag your sleeping pad all your necessities you know having spare underwear and long johns is basically the biggest thing that you need to be able to account for because you know in a 10-day hunt you're not realistically going to be changing that much you know if something gets wet you can put your rain gear on while you dry your pants out and it's all you know ounces make pounds and I heard that from a guide that I first did my first backpack with, um, Trevor Shoeless. And I, he had a cutoff toothbrush. And I remember looking at him at the first day of the hunt going, what in the hell are you doing? <laughs> and now I cut my toothbrush. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I'm the same way. I love that. I'm writing that saying down as you say, ounces make pounds. That is so true. Um, you just, and it just, it's like this mindset that you got to almost come home and lay out everything that was in your pack, look at what you didn't use and cut that out because, you know, in the, in the mountains, every pound weighs on you and it weighs on how many miles you can do. It weighs on your fatigue and and the difference between a 35 pound pack and a 45 pound pack are huge or a 45 to a 55 are huge and, and all those ounces add up in the end. So I'm with you. Anybody that backpacks, you don't backpack too long before where you get like this minimalist attitude with what you do, right? (laughs) That's exactly right. No, it's funny. And having come from done a a handful of backpack hunts this past season, my boyfriend and I went into the Bob Marshall and he goes all out when he does his hunting camp and we'll do like 10 mule loads in just to set up camp. And I'm going, God, 
God, do we really need all this stuff? And it's like, well, you know, he's got 10 mule loads. We can do it. But it's just it's so different once you get to that minimalistic attitude of, oh, yeah, you don't need that. You don't need this. You don't need that. Who brings a lawn chair? And then you get to, you know, more cushier setup where you can do like a horseback mule back hunt. It's like, ah. That chaise lounge is looking pretty dang good right about now. So. <laughs> no doubt there. Well, and a lot of guys enjoy the camping aspect of it too, or having a nice camp. A lot to them, you know, that that's as much as as the experience of, of anything or harvesting something. So you're right; it's just different mindsets. But when you're a backpacker, you have to have the minimalist mindset. Exactly, and you know what? Back when it, you pick a backpack too for a hunt, you have to really figure out what's going to work for you and. Don't necessarily go with the right backpack that everyone else is wearing. I've tried every backpack under the sun, and I'm going to be honest, I keep going back to my Mystery Ranch. I have the Marshall 6500. It's got the perfect layout for the top pack on it. It has a space right in the front where my spotting scope and my tripod. Um, I run an 85 mil Swarovski, so it's a big scope. and. Yes. There's not a lot of opportunity to be fussing around. If you have to throw your pack down, you come over a crest, and there's a sheep there looking at you. I want to be able to get that stuff fast. And it just, to me, you know, they're built to carry a load. I've carried a lot more moose in that pack than I should have and kind of hurt my back in the process, but the backpack held its own. And it's just, I've had my pack now for four years. That's four seasons. And the seasons for just guiding are about 90, 90 some odd days. So when you start doing the math, I mean, investment over quality, there's a lot of ultralight packs out there that if you're going to do a weekend warrior thing, great. You know, get a pack that's ultralight that's going to work for you. But if you're going to be doing a lot of backcountry trips, like invest in something that's built to carry a load. Yes, for sure. Yeah, no, I'm a backpack guru too. I'm always trying new packs and trying to. So I, you know, I think the pack is where you can drop a lot of the weight, but you know, there too, like it's it's all about how it fits you too. You definitely want like an adjustable frame. It's got to have a good hip belt. It's got to have mm-hmm. good shoulders. It's got to have really good uh, lifters on it that actually lift the load, you know, or pull that load tighter to your back and lift your shoulder straps up. Um, the load lifters, gosh, you want to have like all the good adjustments on your hip pouch. You want to have an adjustment where you can really tighten that bag, you know, to your waist. And, you know, I, you know, we all take different mindsets into it. I'm exclusively a backpack hunter, but I always think like that's where I can, I can drop weight. Like I see these packs, six, seven, eight pounds, like, oh man, I'm, I'm more in the three, four, five, and I've gone too light and too minimalist before, like you say that, and that's no good either. It doesn't pack the weight good. But a lot of these packs are designed for like a 35 to 55 pound load, and then you start getting those big loads on it, and that's where it just absolutely kills you. But, you know, those big loads are uncomfortable, kind of whatever packer. That's always been my thought on it, you know, but you definitely can go too light, but I think you can also go too heavy, but you, you want a frame that fits you, all the adjustability. Nowadays, uh, the the meat load shelf is so awesome, like you um, – we used to have to stick all the meat in our bags, and and then it makes your bag so bloody. And you wash them in the bathtub and in the in the washer. But I always call them a meat pack, like it'll rain again, and then all of a sudden your pack will kind of smell like death. And you're in grizzly country, and you're going, oh no! But these meat shelves are really cool, where the pack actually separates from the frame and creates this cavity, where then you can drop in the meat there. And that's really where you want your heaviest load, is as close to your back, and then cinch it in tight. But but you also have different 
different needs. Like we're in two different terrains hunting two different animals. Like most of the time I'm hunting muleys and I, I hunt elk and pack out elk, but moose are twice the size of an elk. So I can see why, you know, and especially with all these clients and harvesting animals, like you've got to have the pack that packs the heavy weight really well or it'll kill you like it might even hurt you or hurt your back. See, and that's where I think it's, it's also a different setup too. So, you know, when you think about it, um, the meat shelves, yes, they are a great idea, but when you're on a backpack hunt where we are, we carry game bags and they're not like the fancy ones that you can pick up at Cabela's. These are literally industrial quality plastic bags. And, you know, we'll, when we butcher something, we'll let the meat cool for as long as we can until we got to make a walk to a strip or back to camp. And then we'll put the meat in the bag. So I, I have my meat in my bag, um, you know, in with everything else, especially when you're backpacking because you're going to have to walk to your airstrip. So, you know, depending on what a guy's needs are, um, don't discount the old school method of carrying along a little bit of tape that you wrap around on your walking pole and taping up a bag that's plastic and just remembering to let it breathe each night. Um, because to be honest, like I can't afford to let my bag get bloody when you're on a hunt. Um, you know, you have to be clean. You can't have blood laying around and the pilot too. You have to have really good meat management. And that's one thing that I really like about the camps up North is that, you know, we'll radio in if we broke a hole through a bag and we've got the teeniest bit of blood on the outside because the last thing we can have is any kind of blood in that plane and a grizzly going to town on the old super cub because then the rest of us are screwed. So, you know, these meat shelves are a great idea if you're going to be doing, you know, a do-it-yourself hunt around home where you can wash your pack out or, you know, you can get to a river. But one of the biggest things that we do as guides up there is make sure that we have meat bags on us all the time, just just so that we don't have to have that extra step of trying to wash our bag out and then running around with a soaking wet bag when you got to go hunting the next day. Oh, for sure. So you found the right game bag. So like I've used expensive game bags around here and I have a few different brands that I like. I have yet to find one that won't bleed through. And so my like our solution has always been, you know, to put it in, um, you know, in a heavy duty, hefty garbage bag, like a black plastic garbage bag. But the thing I don't like about bags is they don't let your meat breathe. So you made a really good point that I just want to touch on is that every night or every time you're stopping, you have to take that meat out of that bag so it can breathe and so it can dry and get that crust on it because it can't sit in its own moisture or it will go bad that's where you know the 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 breakdown process starts so you found these killer game bags that don't leak but you also take your meat out non-stop at night to cool it and then when you stop hiking it's only in those game bags to hike and then out on the plane do i have that right yeah more or less yeah um basically like in our horse camp situation say we kill a ram on the mountain you know, as I'm butchering, I'll lay the meat out on a rock to let it kind of air dry. And then by the time I've done caping the animal and getting the hide laid out, then I'll start divvying up the meat and putting it in my pack. Um, you know, and for the most part, it does have a little bit of a crust because there's always a little bit of wind in the Northwest Territories. Okay. And then when we when we get back to camp, I'll hang it in the meat tent, um, which, you know, we've got strung up with horse bells and stuff like that. And for the most part, we've got pretty good bears because we keep really good clean camps, so they don't usually associate our camps as a place of food um and then we fly that meat out as soon as we can but when you're backpack hunting you know if you kill a ram on day three or day four and you're a two-day walk from your airstrip then yeah you're for the most part unless you're traveling up over high pieces 
um, where you have to stash your meat, you know, 20 yards or, you know, 100 yards away from your tent at night, we will open the bags up and let them cool. But then we'll also, you know, put a rock over top of them, you know, to keep the smells all and everything in there. And, you know, you just hope that you can get to an airstrip, but you are taking your meat out or at least opening the bags so that they can get some air circulating in them. Um, but if you're lucky enough to be walking along a stream, a lot of times I'll sink the meat in those bags themselves. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, if they've, if I've let them air dry and there's a little bit of a crust on them and I've taped them up good and we're camping along a stream at night, I'll take them out and I'll sink them so that they're staying cold in the stream with rocks on them. Um, and you're going to build like a little, like a little kiddie pool, like you would as if you were going to put kids in the river, um, with rocks so that they can't float away and, uh, and just keep them in there. So that way you got no smell, um, unless it's downstream and you got any kind of moisture or um, smells escaping out. But for the most part, they're submerged, they're cold. You pull them out in the morning, dry them off a bit, put them in your pack and keep going. Oh, how cool. Yeah, that does sound like a good setup. So, um, do you know what type of game bags those are that you're using? Well, they're not really game bags. They're actually just industrial, like, big plastic bags, and they're see-through. Um, I'd have to check where my outfitter gets them, but I'm pretty sure it's just, like, a wholesale supply store um, for industrial goods. But okay. they, they work the best. And, I mean, you'll get two or three uses out of them, and, um, yeah, they, they work a treat. Well, it sounds like you guys are dialed on your system, and I know down here we're dealing with a lot more warm weather during, like, our bow season when I hunt where, you know, some days the valley floor can be 100 degrees or you can deal with 70s or 80s where you're still trying to keep meat care. So ours, we can't stick it in a in a locked bag for too long or it will go bad in that heat, but it's just a difference of where we're at, too. You're a little bit cooler where you're at and those sealed bags seem to work, but that sounds like a killer idea with those bags, so I'm going to have to check those out. Yeah, for sure. And even like down south, I mean, if you had those mesh game bags that you wanted to cover your meat and hang it at night, but for transporting, just slipping them in an industrial sized bag, I mean, it saves getting blood over everything. That's one thing. I hate to make laundry. Yeah, no, that's, um, like you say, that's the best case scenario because those cloth game bags or a lot of the game bags that they sell, they work great because they hold that meat and then they've got strings to them to where you can tie them right up and that meat breathes in there and it'll actually get a crust on it in that game bag. And then, like you say, just put it in those industrial style bags like what you're using when you're packing. It's going to keep a lot cleaner bag and and your meat's going to be perfect. I think that's a great idea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, he's... We've got a few things nicked up out there that are pretty good. Right, yeah. You guys have been doing it a long time up there. You guys get your systems down. Well, and you kind of get your system down for anything you're hunting and anything you're doing, a, a system that you like. And there all are, are multiple ways that work, but um, definitely sounds like you guys are dialed on it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so you get to do – you get a cool experience this season. Like um, you get to actually be the hunter. You're going to be hunting sheep, you told me, this year, right? Yeah, you know, every outfit's a little bit different, but as kind of like the three-year thank you for working for us, um, our boss gives us a caribou tag, and you pack that tag around, you know, as kind of like your three-year anniversary, and, you know, if you get an opportunity to bag out on a caribou, perfect, then you get to do that. And on your fifth year, it's a little bit more special, and you get your choice of a sheep or a moose tag, which, you know, when you start looking at the dollars, like that's a $20,000 hunt or twenty five or, you know, up there. And But usually you're just packing the tag around. And so the really cool part about this coming year is that we're a little bit overstaffed. And there's one area that is really hard to hunt. And if there's rams there, it's a 10 to 12 day grind. Like you're walking the entire time. 
just covering country because there's not many places to make a strip and it's just it's enormous country like you walk across a bowl and you think oh it'll only take me half an hour and like an hour later you're only halfway across um and so what's going to be neat is there's a couple of companies that I'm working with that we're going to have um kind of a photographer and who is also a friend of mine and a sheep hunter come with me but the really cool part is that I've got someone special in my life that I'm going to be bringing on this hunt. And they don't know it yet. That's the really cool part. They they don't quite understand what's getting, you know, planned in behind um, the closed door here. And what it's going to look like is everything's going to be covered and um, they're going to get to come hunting with me. And it's someone very special to me and just kind of watched me grow up. So it's I I'm sitting here smiling and I can't even formulate words because I don't even know what they're going to say. How cool, Rachel. That is so neat. So you get to have your friend come along and then you get to have a photographer there and you get to dedicate time to go hunt the sheep. And that country sounds insane, like the the big, bold basins that take you forever to walk through and no, no airstrips, just really remote, rugged country Good for you. What a great experience. And you get to be the one that has the tag. You're not taking somebody hunting. So, so you get to be the client in essence. I mean, you're guiding yourself. But uh, how cool. Good for you, Rachel. That is awesome. Oh, thank you. No, it'll be cool. And in the NWT, you actually, um, even though I guide there, like you have to have someone else who's guiding you. Um, that's just the rules for it. So, you know, the friend of mine who's also been hunting up there a bit, um, they're going to act as my guide. So it'll just, you know, it'll be a really neat experience. Um, last year was my fifth year working for Harold and I packed a sheep tag around and, you know, I had a lot of hunts that went till the end of the time. So I never actually got the opportunity to pursue one for myself, um, which is totally fine. That's what I'm there to do. So kind of getting this lump sum of time in this area that can be a bust or you know who knows what might be lurking around up there we haven't taken a ram up in that neck of the woods in a very long time so the potential for taking a really neat old ram is just i don't know i'm already having like dreams about it and starting to get in shape for it because as a guide it's like oh yeah you only go as fast as the slowest person but it's like cripes i might be the slowest person on this hunt, so i'm already <laughs> training so <laughs> Good for you. Uh, well, I'm smiling just as big just hearing about it. I'm excited for you. That just sounds like such a great experience. That um, And those doll sheep are so beautiful. And to have the chance, at, like you say, a big older ram. Like, well, uh, what what is an older ram considered, like, where you guys are at there? Well, we try and take sheep that are, you know, between 10 or older. Um, the youngest that we would take is, like, a 9-year-old if we had to on, like, the very last day. And it was a good-looking 9-year-old. But... So anything over 10, you know, is a good status quo. But, I mean, if I could find, like, an old, gnarly 12-and-a-half or 13 or, heck, if I'm going to dream a 14-year-old ram that's busted off and a big Roman nose and just has character that, you know, he's on his way out with no teeth, that, to me, is just, like, the ultimate, the ultimate sheep. Yeah, it would be an ultimate sheep. Yeah. Um, I just love how those dolls, dolls' horns flare. But yeah, and I love how you, you guys that hunt them, you, you get. I mean, and it's. I guess it's the same thing for me for mule deer and elk. Like you want a big one, but yeah, you want a big one that's old, you know. And and you guys, um, like you talking about it, just hearing you talk about how a fourteen-year-old busted ram would be, you know, huge Roman nose would be your dream ram, or not busted but broomed off, like big, thick, heavy thing. But that's really neat to hear. Um, you, you guys just get such a such a good respect for the sheep that you hunt, which is really cool. No, oh, thank you. You know, it's. 
I love sheep hunting in the fact that not only are they cool and they live in some really spectacular places, but you can age them within like 95 percentile of what they actually are. You know, every now and then you'll get a false ring that some of the best guys would have to look 10 times at. But, you know, we got a theory if you got to look at a sheep and have them grow a couple extra annuli, then you're looking too hard and move on to the next. Okay. Um, so, you know, that's the part that I really love about it is that from a conservation standpoint, you're taking the older rams that are, you know, on their way out. Wow. So you got to be really good at judging, too. That's always my biggest fear. Like, I put in for rams tags all over the forty lower 48 trying to get a tag. And my dream is to someday go to, like, where you're at, Northwest Territories or Alaska and hunt a doll. I just love dolls. Um, but, but yeah, that's kind of my biggest fears. I don't spend a lot of time looking at them and judging them. So I'm sure it takes a lot of time to get good at, but you can actually tell 95% and you're counting the rings of the age rings on the horns. Is that, do I have that right? Yep. That's a hundred percent correct. You know, it's, you know, it's like any species you're looking for a big bodied sway back, you know, pot bellied, big (laughs) Roman nosed animal that for the most part, you know, the older rams are the first to bed down and the last to get up. And, you know, it's, it's like any other species, you know, I think, you know, you start looking at anything long enough and you start to get a knack for it. And yes, that's one thing I love how social sheep can be. And one of my favorite things when you're up high and you're sitting in the basin glassing, you know, a young band of rams on one side and they're playing and running around and frolicking and you glass over to the next and it's a slopey grassy, you know, you lamb nursery and you got the little lambs that are just farting around everywhere and chasing each other. It's just they're one of the really cool species that interact in such a playful way that you can kind of see, you know, the day in and day out. So they're they're special. Gosh, that's so cool. You know, nobody appreciates or, or respects or, or likes the animals more than us hunters. I mean, you hearing you talk about the sheep, it, it seems like me when I'm talking about watching muleys or watching bears. And I could, you know, I don't, I don't have to harvest one on a hunt to absolutely enjoy myself. And and just watching over the way, like you say, they interact with each other and the way, you know, a, a band of rams or or a bachelor herd of bucks or you know a a, a boar versus you know whatever it is there's just so fun to to watch and be a part of the wilderness up there and be a part of the ecosystem that's so neat oh yeah it's you know it's special it's the last true serengeti i think yeah absolutely well yeah and you have some really special country up there too i'm sure it's just gorgeous just so much fun to roam up there in that country and it it's so vast i love when you describe like getting off the plane and it's just you and you're you're you know you may be a hundred miles away from somewhere else and like the spot you're hunting this year there there isn't many places to land a super cub and so it's all by foot power um but boy you were just going to have an epic experience up there no, oh, thank you. And I'm really looking forward to sharing it because that's what it's all about, too. So, yeah, it'll be exciting. I, I probably won't be able to even, like, sleep the whole first week before I go on that hunt. So. Ah, oh, good for you. Well, yeah, um, I do. I've got to hear the story on your sheep this year, so I want to wish you good luck on that. Um, and, and you've got a podcast that you're going to launch here in the next couple weeks. Isn't that right? I do. It actually, you know, it's... It's kind of turned into something that was joked about a year ago, and, you know, it it's something that allows hunters to be social, but I've got a few different avenues that I'm pursuing, and well, career-wise, my dream is to be an outfitter. Um, you know, I want to help maintain that heritage, and some of the different avenues about being able to talk about it and communicate 
that I love doing when I'm at the trade shows is just networking and talking. And so I've been coached by a few other people that have had really strong, you know, support behind me. And one of them, you know, is a good buddy of mine, Cody Rich. And it's going to be called the Full Curl Podcast, um, predominantly based, you know, in and around uh, sheep hunting in the North Country and the history about it because I'm rooted so deeply there. And to me, it's going to be a fun way to give back and share the history that I've been a part of and hopefully I'm able to continue into the future. And I went with Full Curl because I, you know, Full Curl, Full Circle. I work with conservation and I'm deeply rooted to the sheep hunting side of things in that whole realm. So I'm hoping to be able to enlighten and share and it's exciting. I I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's super exciting. It's a great platform and I I love the the title of your podcast and I I know you're going to do great at it. You do such a good job of articulating the excitement and thrill of the hunt and then and then also that technical information that you have. So, um no, I can't wait. I'll, I'll be a fan of your podcast when it comes out. So, I'm excited to see it. Full Curl Podcast is what it's going to be called. Yes, it will be. It's going to be a part of um, the website I've got coming out um, in the next couple of weeks here, which is basically just a landing page for, you know, all the stories and columns that I've been a part of and the conservation efforts and the past initiatives and the future initiative as well. So, um, you know, I've dabbled in photography and the whole lifestyle side of my, for lack of better words, nomadic brand. Um, so it's going to be on my site, which will be findyournomadie.com. Um, nomadie is a word that's rung true to me. I've always been called a nomad or a gypsy. And when I started researching a year and a half ago, you know, a word that meant a lot to me, I kept coming up with nomad and I was like, ah, oh, it's been done. But I'm very strongly rooted in my Finnish and Hungarian, um, ancestry. And no matter how many times I researched the word nomad, the trunk, you know, first four or five letters are the same. And so I decided to go with the Finnish Hungarian translation, which is just adding an I. So there you go. Nomadi was born. And from there, the Full Curl podcast will have a home. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's a big, scary step. Just like when you started yours, Brian, I'm sure there's a lot of learning curves that I'll be going through these next couple months. Yeah, heck, I'm still scared. <laughs> you just go on and you just start talking and it comes out. But no, you get better as you go, but you're going to be great at it. Oh, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. And then so people can find you to find out about this information. Um, you run an Instagram and a Facebook page where, you're, where you'll be posting about the podcast, your website, and then also your sheep hunt coming up. Exactly. Um, Instagram, you just look up Rachel Attila and Facebook. Um, I do have a Facebook page that I've been very inactive for the last year while I've kept quiet about all these other things I've got going on. But um, if we're friends on Facebook or you follow me, please keep following me and I'll let you know how that's going to transition and even like the, sh the story behind sharing this sheep hunt because I'm going to be revealing who that person is coming up in the next two weeks and, you know, the whole background of getting ready for that hunt and the me mental preparedness and sharing that adventure through the art of storytelling with a photographer and videographer that's coming and you know, some of the other things that will be going on. Um, coming up soon here, I'm going to be headed up to Alaska. I've been a part of the International Symposium for Thinhorns that was put forward by the Wild Sheep Society or Wild Sheep Foundation of BC, um, hosted it last three years ago in Richmond. Um, and now we're going to be going up to Anchorage. And the Thinhorn Summit has stakeholders from all across the world, um, you know, that come and participate, but predominantly 
people here that are influenced directly with a thin horn. So that's going to be pilots. That's going to be commercial miners, geographers. It's going to be outfitters, guides, um, you name it. And we're going to be there collaborating and working through some of our, our issues that we have for our sustainable populations. So it's neat getting to be a part of all these different things. And so I'm really looking forward to sharing this next big step with everyone. And so thank you, Brian, for having me and being able to talk about it. It's, it's neat to kind of say it out loud. You get to that point where it's like, gosh, is this really happening? And it's like, yep, buck up, kid, because it's about to get bigger. <laughs> right. Buck up and go for it. No, good for you. you got a, a ton of really good things in the work. So, um, yeah, I can't wait to see you go here from the future. So um, make sure to check you out. Instagram, Facebook, Rachel Attila. Uh, again, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. We really appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you very much, Brian. I look forward to hearing about how your caribou hunt goes in Alaska. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Rachel Attila. Um, boy, that was a fun conversation with her. You can just really hear that that passion in her voice when she starts talking about hunting and, and guiding and outfitting. So, um, you know, and we may not agree on, on everything, but, you know, too, we live in two different terrains, hunting different species with two different climates. So you're going to have different ideas and theories on, on what gear works which way and different preferences. Uh, but she really knows her stuff about, uh, Northwest territories. And, and, uh, so, so I really enjoyed having her on and, and she did great on the episode and I'm sure she's going to do great with her own podcast. Um, yeah, full curl podcast is going to be the name of it coming out here in the next couple of weeks. So, uh, make sure to give her some love. Um, again, just really enjoyed having her on, uh, this episode was brought to you by sportsman's warehouse. Again, guys, these guys are working really hard to have the right staff in there and the right gear to help you out. So uh, make sure to give them some support, and, and thanks to them for supporting the podcast. And uh, with that, just want to thank you guys again for all the support. You guys just keep growing this podcast, which is, is just great for for everybody involved. And I just, I just keep trying to have on good guests and good information, and I really appreciate you guys reaching out to the guests that you guys like. Um, you know, like Craig Temple and Steve Drake and, and a lot of these guys, when you guys hear something you like, you reach out and tell them they did a good job on Eastman's Elevated. And that just means the world to me, you know, and, and just brings weight to what we're doing. And they know they're reaching hardcore hunters when they're on and, and gives them a, a reason to, to want to be on the podcast. So I really appreciate that guys. And, and, uh, appreciate the, the, you know, I've got that page on, um, Eastman's Elevated on Facebook and Instagram. You guys keep giving me support there. And, and then I really want to thank you guys. Um, it's like it's this strange thing at iTunes. I want to thank you guys for leaving your comments in iTunes and your ratings. Like I don't know how the algorithm works with iTunes, but you know they don't recommend us for related podcasts, other hunting podcasts. And I think it's just getting you know more you know, more ratings on there and, and, and more comments on there. And I think the more we do that, the more they're going to recommend us, you know, that are similar to other hunting podcasts. So just really want to thank you guys for leaving your comments on there. And I just really think we have one of the, the best fan base out there. And, and I, you know, I, I really want to thank each one of you guys individually for listening in every week and, and the support. So, um, you know, I just can't say enough good things about what we have going here. So, um, with that, uh, that's a wrap. This is uh, this week's episode, and boy, we'll we'll get out another episode next week and just keep them coming, guys. So um, till then, keep working hard, working hard towards your goals. Make sure you're getting put in for some of these tags uh, across the West and some of these great hunts and adventure hunts, and, and uh, boy, we'll check in with you next week.